Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. I want to invite you to turn to the prophet Isaiah then this morning. You'll find it on page six, uh, printed on page six and seven, this glorious chapter that we're going to look at. I'm going to read it for us. Page six and seven in your order of service. We're looking at themes from Handel's Messiah, texts of scripture that Handel set beautiful music to. I read uh, this past week, uh, past week or so, I read some of the sermons of John Newton preaching his way through Handel's Messiah. Newton said that coming across Handel's Messiah is like a like a small child discovering a beautiful telescope, a gold-encrusted telescope, and the child picks it up and looks at it and can tell it is beautiful, but does not know what it is for, does not know how to use it. And John Newton said, Handel's Messiah is a little bit like that. It's like the gold-encrusted, beautiful casing. But what do the words actually mean? And that's what we're going to do together by looking at Isaiah 60. That's what we want, isn't it? What is God saying to us? through words like this. I'm going to be doing a talk this afternoon at four o'clock in the downstairs hall on how to give a Bible talk, what happens when we're doing something like this. I hope that we know by now as a church family there is no magic in it in any way. My job now is simply to show you and for us to see together what the Bible says and what God says. So let's read together. I'll read it for us. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together, they come to you, your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord, your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath, I struck you, but in my favor, I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually day and night. They shall not be shut that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. 
The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the plain and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious where a a king puts his feet on a footstool. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your wall salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more. Your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Amen. Six things the birth of Jesus means for the world. That's what we're looking at. Six things the birth of Jesus means for the world. Number one, comfort, two Sundays ago. Number two, last Sunday, judgment. And this morning, number three, light, light. And I I hope you notice the sheer size of Christmas in what we're doing there. Six things the birth of Jesus means for the world. The world. Oh, friends, this morning, I hope Christmas means everything to you. It does to me. That's the way it should be, shouldn't it? Us as Christ's people. But our Lord Jesus Christ brings gifts for the world. From the squalor of a borrowed stable. Now he's standing in the place of honor. Crowned with glory on the highest throne. The highest throne in the world. And here we are together on the third Sunday of Advent. Waiting. 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 What are we waiting for? Light. World light, not local light, not just here in this room, not just here in our city, not just here in your home today, but global light, global glory, global harmony, a world made new. That's what we're waiting for, isn't it? There are three things here in this beautiful poetic chapter of Isaiah, three things which if we see them can flood your heart with light. 
Isaiah 60 is all about light, isn't it? All about light in a world of darkness. So clear right from the opening verse. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And it's so clear that that light is God himself, isn't it? Because this is poetry, if you look at the very first verse, often in Hebrew poetry, the second line just simply amplifies the first line, says the first line in a slightly different way. Arise, shine, for your light has come. What does that mean, your light has come? It means the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. When you see the Lord, you see his glory and it sheds light. Where does it shed the light? Israel, Palestine, the church. Verse 2, behold, darkness shall cover the earth. Thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you. And his glory will be seen upon you. Look at the scale of this this morning, friends. Darkness covers the earth, the whole earth. We live in a world of darkness, don't we? We all know this. A dark day for democracy. That was Nicola Sturgeon last year when Boris Johnson suspended Parliament. October headline this year, Sturgeon's darkest day after COVID patients sent into a care home. Listen, some of us live with this all the time, don't we? Death has arrived far too soon in our homes. There is a kind of despair that just won't lift. We can't get it out of our minds. Life hasn't worked out the way that we thought it would. Our our home is not the place we dreamed it always would be. World affairs and local news on any given day can sometimes be more than you can bear. What is God's solution? What does God have for us? What does God have for the earth, his earth? The peoples of the world, what is he going to do about the darkness? Isaiah 60 says, a new creation. That's what he's going to do. A new world. A new world at the end of time that starts with Christmas time. Starts with the coming into the world of Jesus, the light of the world. That's what we're looking at here, friends, in this chapter. This is the kingdom of God come down to earth. It's amazing, isn't it? John's vision of the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, those beautiful, uh, well-known poetic verses that we go to on Remembrance Sunday and other times of the year. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of heaven like a bride dressed for the bridegroom. It comes from Isaiah chapter 60. When we see the glory of the Lord descending, he will cover his world in light. And here's what we will see. Three great shafts of light. Because of Christmas, these lights are in our world beginning to burn. Here they are, number one. Because of Christmas, there will be, in the end, a world at peace and a family enriched. That's the first point. Number one, there will be a world at peace and a family enriched. When the light of God's glory fills the world, it will mean the end of war. And it will mean the beautiful growth of God's family. That whole idea starts there in verse 3. A world at peace and a family enriched. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
In the ancient world, kings traveled for only two reasons. To make war or to pay tribute. The only reason they traveled, to make war or to pay tribute, to pay homage or to expand their empire, to increase their territory. So look at the chapter again and just get the feel of it. Why are these kings on the move? Is there any saber rattling here? No, of course not. There is none, is there? These kings have left their swords at home, haven't they? This is a world where the nuclear codes have been forgotten. Trident is finished. The guns have fallen silent. Now, make no mistake about it, there is huge military traffic here in this chapter. Huge military traffic, but it is all for peace, isn't it? Verse 5. The abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. The wealth and riches of the nations are coming. Coming, yes, on the seas, in those battleships, but not for war. There are no planes on the aircraft carriers. They are bringing their wealth, animals, gold, incense. Look at verse 11. These kings are not coming in pride and aggression, are they? They're being led along like lambs in triumphal procession. Just look how clear it is in verse 18. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders, even though all the kings of the earth are marching on your border. Here's why this is so beautiful, friends. A world at peace is matched all the way through this chapter with a family at one. A family at peace. A family enriched. A family restored, reunited. Most of the students we've had with us these past weeks, most of them, not all of them, but most of them are gone back home. Think of them returning to parents. Think of your kids grown up away from home, longing to see them, children who've been abroad and away from you, not within reach or within sight or with touch. Think of them coming coming home to you. This is a family enriched, verse 4. Your sons shall come from afar, your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Same ideas there in verse 9, you see it? To bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. See, because Isaiah is talking here about the end of time, this is the great fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, isn't it? Through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. And I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the tiny grains of sand, the the particles of dust, if anyone could do that, that's how many children you will have, Abraham. You see it here, God is keeping that promise to Abraham. Isaiah is saying God has not forgotten it. Here they come, verse 9, into Jerusalem, sailing in on their ships, all the islands of the earth. What are we this morning? A tiny little island, aren't we? Brothers and sisters, when we see that at the end, when we see men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every people group, and when we see paupers and princes and lepers and lepers and lords and kings and queens pour through the gates of the new Jerusalem, Isaiah says, how will you feel? How will we feel? Sometimes when I preach at a wedding, I speak to the husband about his new wife and I tell him to put children in her arms and light in her eyes. 
children in her arms and light in her eyes, all because of verse 4. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. We've all seen that, haven't we? Mothers with children on their hips. It's how they stand when they're holding a child. When you have offspring like that in your arms and offspring like that in your midst, how do you feel? Verse 5. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. It puts light in your eyes, doesn't it? It's one of the most common things older people say in our church fellowship. The effect of children in our midst, the good it does all of us, puts light into the heart of a church family. What has God promised you this morning, promised us? We this morning are Zion's sons and daughters who will enter the city from afar, won't we? We are the foreign children. We're not Jews, ethnically Jewish, are we? Yet one day we will enter Jerusalem's always open, never shut, always safe, never dangerous gates. And we, when we get there, we will look around at more children of Zion than we can ever count. And there, I guess not in the corner, but somewhere in the center, with all his children around him, will be the great patriarch Abraham, our great, 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 great grandfather, with his millions of spiritual children all around him. Maybe today, friends, you've never known a family reunion. Maybe your family, you would say, look, if you're honest, your family is where war breaks out. It's possible, isn't it, that some of us have not known joy like this within our four walls. And Isaiah says to you this morning, just wait. Just wait. It's coming. It's coming. Maybe you do know the joy of this, or you have known it, known it at some point. Mothers and fathers, you love this, don't you? You love this end of term, coming home. They're coming back. You can't wait. You've got them back again. In that throbbing, swelling joy, Isaiah is saying to us, can we see the light? Can we see the light? Can you feel what the glory of the Lord breaking upon us will be like? Warfare past and family harmony present forever. That's the first shaft of light. A world at peace, a family enriched. Number two, because of Christmas, there will be a world in reverse and a people enthroned. A world in reverse and a people enthroned. This chapter is all about a great reversal. There's several, in fact. I'm going to show them to us. Here in Isaiah 60, everything is going in the opposite direction from what we normally think of. Here are people flocking to the city, thronging to it. The nations are coming to Jerusalem. If you were to go through Isaiah 60 and count up all the verbs, the main verb in the chapter, the main thing people are doing, they are bringing, they are coming, they are traveling, they are gathering, they are processing. And look, it is not God's people opening wide the gates of their city to go out to the world. It's not that, is it? It's the world coming to us, to them. It's like a pilgrimage in reverse. Do you remember just a couple of years ago when Iraqi special forces, there was a a time, wasn't there, where this was on our TV screens all the time. 
Iraqi forces bit by bit advancing on Mosul, trying to take back the city from ISIS. And I can't remember the numbers. It was something like 20,000. It might might have been more, might have been 200,000. There was a staggering number of people trapped in the city. And as the army arrives for war, what do they do? They flee the city, don't they? Long, long line of people snaking off over the horizon, far as you can see, with all their possessions strapped on their back, fleeing the city. That's what we're familiar with, isn't it? People fleeing cities on the run. Massive refugee crises all over the world because people flee cities. And here Isaiah is saying, if you can somehow imagine on your TV screens at the end of time, imagine pressing rewind and watching all this, all this fleeing go into reverse. At the end of time, we will see the biggest refugee community the world has ever seen as thousand upon thousand upon thousand flock to the new Jerusalem. It's not the only reversal here. What's the real surprise in this passage? What's the true back to front that's going on here? It's not only that the nations are going against the flow, now traveling to Jerusalem, but as they do it, they are bowing low as they do so, aren't they? Before God's people. Look at how it works. Verse 7, the kings of the earth come to God's people and lavish them with gifts. Bow low before them. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. Verse 10, foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. The sons of those who afflicted you, verse 14, shall come bending low to you. All who despised you shall bow down at your feet. Former top dogs take second place. Who has the royal title now in this world? Queen Elizabeth? Donald Trump? But who wins here? In the end, the dictator or the dictated? Look at verse 15. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever. A joy from age to age. Friends, do you see the reversal? God's people are enthroned, given royal status. The nations bow low. And make no mistake, these nations are not forced into it. There's an awful thing happens in, after war, isn't it? Forced subjugation, crippling taxes. No, this is what the nations want to do. Look at verse 9. They bring their wealth, their silver and gold. They bring it gladly. Look how homely it is, verse 9. These great warrior kings coming to Zion are like doves coming home to their nests, coming home to roost. They're coming back to where they belong, under God's wings. And friends, as the nations of the earth one day do that, see what this chapter is saying? As they do that, as they get into the new Jerusalem, they find that that tiny, tiny little church down the road that people hardly ever knew existed, And inside that little church was Mr. and Mrs. Jones, who gave and gave and gave and gave and gave even some more to world mission, and who prayed every day and who lived ordinary lives. Why, 
those people are now there with the whole wealth of Saudi Arabia brought into the kingdom, laid at their feet. They are there, those nations coming in, in the presence of this tiny, ordinary little couple because they prayed. Missionaries went to Saudi Arabia with the gospel. And here are some of the royal rulers of that kingdom bowing low before God's people. And they say to them, this is our city. Your God is our God. Friends, how do we know that will happen? I often ask that. I often ask that myself as you read a chapter like this, full of glorious promise. Really, God, will it really happen? Will the nations really do this? What did you make of verse 6? A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. How do we know God will do this? Isn't part of the answer because he's already done it. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We travel afar except There weren't three, were there? We don't know how many kings came to Bethlehem, how many wise men, how many entered that tiny town traveling from these. Maybe it was 30 of them. Maybe it was 300 of them. But what happened? The kings of the earth brought gold and frankincense and myrrh for the Lord. And get this, friends, for the Lord of heaven and earth lying in a manger the greatest on earth, bowed low before the very least on earth. Do you see it? Played out already in history, it's happened. The greatest on earth bent their knee before the least on earth. Kings bowed before a baby. Can you see the light? Can you feel the light? Friends, I hope this morning you believe this with all your heart. When you watch the news when you live through a year like 2020, when you lead that tiny, tiny little school SU group, when you attend a house group of six, or you run an SU camp of 600, when you preach to a room of 50 or 500, when you, when you get the news that comes in from Release International or the Barnabas Fund, You get Lorna Ferguson's prayer letter in Japan, now working there alone without her husband, David. And that, that, that massive nation, mighty nation, slumbers on in the darkness. And the church is small and his people are weak. And pastors are imprisoned in Iran and Korea. Friends, I hope you believe with all your heart that one day, One day, great reversal is coming. A reversal is coming. The world will flow backwards. The sons of our oppressors will come bowing low before us. I want to finish with this, this last point. What what does it mean that the world will flow backwards? Everything turned upside down. Here's point three. Number three, our world will enter eternity. And God will be in our midst. Because of Christmas, our world will enter eternity. God will be in our midst. You see, if in the, if at the end of time we will see the world flow backwards, kings will serve servants, 
The homeless will now eat at the royal table. What, what does Jesus do in his ministry? Who does he include? The rich, the famous, you know, the poor, the outcast, the lame, all giving us real historical foreshadowing of the end. If at the end the world will go into reverse, if these things happen, then Isaiah says, because of that, then the very things God gives us to mark time and seasons and to separate night from day, God is just going to turn them off. You're not going to be needed anymore, verse 19. For the Lord himself will be our light. God will be with us and on every side we will see his glory. It's as if everything will go back in the end to how it was meant to be at the beginning. Only better than the beginning. For in the beginning there was a garden. And in the beginning there was a sun and a moon in the sky. But now at the end, instead of a garden and just Adam and Eve, there will be a city. Verse 22, there will be a mighty nation. There will be a thousand mighty nations of people on every hand, and we will live forever in this perfect world with God himself in our midst. And your days of sorrow will end. Your days of sorrow will end. I I want to do something I've done a couple of times before. I want to finish with two applications to the old and to the young to the old and to the young, and that's everybody. Okay, you take your pick. I'm not going to do it for you. you. You put yourself in the category you want to be in this morning. Some of us here have seen enough and lived long enough, haven't we, that sorrow seems to be on every side around us. I've told you before about Derek Kidner, a wonderful, godly, humble Old Testament scholar. And as he as he moved through life, taking his his godly scholarship with him into his old age. Later in life, he he wrote about the general desolations of old age. Not only do the lights of the faculties and the senses begin to fade, but so too the warm glow of old friends and familiar customs and long-held hopes. Age steals all of these away, he said. Old age comes, he says, at a time when there is no longer the resilience of youth or the prospect of recovery to offset it. In one's early years and the greater part of life, troubles and illnesses are just setbacks, not disasters. You expect the sky to clear eventually. But in old age, you are now adjusting to the closing of that long chapter, the final stretch where there will be no improvement. The clouds will always gather again and time will no longer heal but kill. Isaiah 60, friends, says to us this morning, there will come a time, there will come a time when your sun will never set again. Your moon will win no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of sorrow will end. You know, I want, I, want, I want you to look at that incredible verse, verse 19. W- why can Isaiah say the Lord will be your everlasting light? It's, it's, it's because all other light is borrowed light, isn't it? Drew and I entered this room this morning in darkness, flick switches, and the light comes on because it is borrowing energy from somewhere else. Light from a torch comes from a battery. Light in the ceiling from the electricity grid. But light that comes from God has its source in God. It is not drawn from anywhere else. 
You know those words at Christmas, John's gospel, speaking about the Lord Jesus. In him was life. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. He does not have a battery that needs to be recharged, replenished, replaced, refilled. The sun in the sky by day and the moon by night. What are they plugged into? Where does their energy come from? It comes from Jesus, the word life he has in himself. And our Lord Jesus is so powerful that before there was a sun or a moon, before they existed, there was light because he had life. It's why Moses, when he meets God in the burning bush, as God is revealing his name to him, what an amazing picture as you want to know who God is. What does Moses see? A fire that was nothing but fire. A fire that was not a compound of any other energy sources, but a fire that had its life in itself. Know this today, friends, as you inhabit your your particular kind of darkness, whatever it is. I don't know what it is, but I do know it's there for most of us. Sorrow, sin, suffering, maybe just simply God seems distant. One day again, at the end of time, the life of the Lord Jesus will overflow again so much that God will just say to the sun and the moon, thanks very much, your job is done. And turn them off. You had one job and you've done it. And light, light, more light than we've ever imagined possible, more light will flood the earth from shore to shore. And that darkness we live inside today will be gone. Gone. Here's an application for all of us. I think particularly for those of us who are younger, but not just the young. Don't take offense at this. Maybe this applies to everybody as much. Let's never forget, friends, that one day everything will go backwards. One day the nations will come to us. One day. But until then... We have to get this right. Until then, we go to them. We go to them until the end, until the new creation. We go to them. One day, the daylight will break. Shadows will flee. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth. And until we get there, we board airplanes and we, we kiss our families goodbye and we take our children to Nigeria and to Cambodia. And here's how it works. Because we go to them, because the Garveys do what they're doing, the Norgates did what they did, because the Fergusons are doing what they're doing, because they went, one day the nations will come. Maybe you've never, ever thought world mission was for you. World mission is for other people. It's what others do. Maybe you... You think that because you wonder what will come of it. It's always small. It's always weak. Look, says God, here it is. If you go, look who comes. Maybe one day Japan will become like China. And the Fergusons and everybody that they've ever worked with in that land will be dead and gone for generations. But the joy of generation after generation of Japanese people coming into the kingdom. Who knows what God will do? Did you know that the same Rome 
the same Rome that crucified the Lord Jesus in the first century bowed the knee to him in the fourth century. Friends, this morning, darkness has no future. No future. No one has a future like the people of God. And one day, his city, his presence, one day will be the joy of all the earth. Amen.